Welcome to Teeth and Titanium, a podcast about oral surgery, residency, and life. We would like to thank the Canadian Association of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgery for their continued support. All opinions expressed in this podcast by the hosts and their guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of the CAOMS. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon for surgical decision making. All right, everyone, welcome to TNT episode 12. Now, Oscar, this is our one year anniversary episode. How's it going? It's We've made it this far. I'm a bit surprised, but super excited about it. Are you surprised? Are you surprised we made it to the full year mark? It's me and you. Yes, I'm surprised. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised we made it. I think after a few episodes aired and we started getting some good feedback and some good guests coming in, I was confident we were going to make it. I do think, you know, I might have jinxed us. I talked about this great streak we're on and how we always look forward to doing this. Then boom, what do you know? April hits. I wasn't going to bring it up. We didn't have an episode for the first time. I, it was a touchy subject. I was going to leave it alone, but you brought it up. It's a touchy subject, you know, a little bit of a scheduling issue with uh, one of the great guests we have lined up in the future, as well as I was a little bit under the weather and couldn't really speak for a while. I would say a little bit is an understatement from what I hear. Yeah, tough to do a podcast when you can't speak. Yeah, yeah. Tough, tough to be an oral surgeon also when you can't speak, I, I've come to realize. But honestly, easier if you sedate your patients. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> Voice is still a little bit on the rocks, but slowly coming back. But, you know, we couldn't miss our one-year anniversary, so we decided we got a mission through this. We have a really great episode coming up. This is going to be kind of a catch-up episode from last time. We've got a ton of stuff to talk about, including a special anniversary segment, so... Why don't we jump right into it and let's jump into current events. All right, Oscar. So one of the first things we want to talk about, you know, when it comes to this podcast and our one year anniversary is one of the nice things about this podcast is it's been keeping us up to date, not only on each other's lives, on things going on in the community, but also on, you know, academic topics. You and I, we have to prep for each episode. We have to read up on, you know, the resident reminder. We have to do a critical appraisal of a journal. I, I feel like we're educating ourselves by doing the podcast as well as educating others. It's funny you say that because so like you're technically still in education mode, I would say a little bit more than I am because you're currently doing a fellowship and you were still, you're still studying for the board exam. So it's almost like, it's not like you have to do it, but you're more involved in it. To me, it's, this has been huge, right? Because once you go into private practice, it's not like you forget things that you learn, but they're not as important necessarily in certain situations or they're not your focus and you focus more on the private practice things. This has been great for me because it does make me refresh things. I'm like, oh, yeah, as a resident, you need to know this. And it's kind of exciting to catch up on it. Yeah. And probably when you're you know, dealing with uh, residents, when you do sometimes or your partners or you're getting on call and you're dealing with these cases or pathology, you're like, oh, I know about this. No big deal. We talked yeah. about that on episode four. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So no, it's definitely been great. And, and we really appreciate kind of the intellectual stimulation we get from doing this as well as obviously the personal enjoyment. Speaking of, you know, educational content. One of the recent CAOMS webinars was done on April 17th. Yeah. Uh, really, really good webinar by Clayton Davis on uh, TMJ, kind of building a TMJ practice and how he deals with his patients. One of the coolest things I thought about the webinar, well, two things I'll say. The first is he had the best arthroscopic videos I've ever seen. I've never seen such clarity and such great explanation of arthroscopic videos. Normally, when you see arthroscopic videos in a presentation or PowerPoint, you know, they look like they were from the 90s. They're all, and they're yeah, kind of, they're all fuzzy. They're blurry. Yeah. They're all fuzzy. Everything looks white. And yeah. they're like, oh, there's that. Yeah. And you're like, what are you talking about? No. Yeah, it's a low-def camera like that. that you used. Yeah. He was using like a 4K camera, I think he said, or something like that. It, it, 
It was really, really impressive what he showed. So that was the first cool thing. And the second cool thing was it was great to see a Canadian grad did a fellowship who's actually doing that stuff in Canada and doing, you know, he's, I didn't realize he's one of the few people in Canada that's doing like legit TMJ arthroscopic surgery. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's, it's not, we always talk about our podcast. We've, I feel like we've had a bunch of TMJ topics on our podcast and we talk about it so loosely, like it's used everywhere, but it's not like, it's pretty limited to the people that are doing that here in Canada. Yeah, exactly. And, and you were fortunate, you know, you were at Toronto, so you trained with Dr. Sitka. So you were exposed to that. You're dealing with probably the, probably the biggest name in Canada. Yeah, I would say. I would say. Yeah. When it comes to TMJ, so you had that exposure. Did did notice that, you know, they followed the webinar by a scotch tasting. I'd have to go back to the record books to see where this lined up with our kind of communication on wine and scotch. Now people always want that. I mean, could could it not have been a Shirley Temple tasting afterwards instead? A PG thirteen version. I think I think for the audience, I think they did it properly. Maybe if the audience was was you, Shirley Temple would have been right. But I, I think they picked correctly with the scotch tasting. Yeah, they have all these fancy oral surgeons now and all they drink is wine yeah. and scotch and things like that. One day, maybe one day. Well, especially here in Canada, because we're still locked down in COVID. So you might as well start. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. The next thing we want to talk about was, you know, it's tax season. It just passed. In some places, you know, there's an extension because of the pandemic for your tax submission and things like that. But, you know, I'll be the first to admit this is probably pretty embarrassing. Well, we'll see what your response is. But, you know, <laughs> before I got married, you know, my dad would do my taxes for me. I'm not going to lie. No. I, you know, I, I was a student. I was a resident. It was very simple to do taxes. He would just kind of do my taxes for me and just kind of lump it in with him. And I, I would never do it. Up until I graduated, I 100%. Parents did my taxes okay. all the time. Okay, so parents. Are, okay, so we're both in the same boat. I'm sure there's so many just rolling you know, their eyes at us right now. Just rolling yeah. their eyes at us right now. Then I got married. You know, my wife. She's a business consultant from Deloitte, so not in accounting at Deloitte, but she's in business. She's more familiar. She's done her own tax returns for a long time. She actually does her family's tax returns. She helps them with that. I was like, listen, can you do both of ours? She's like, yeah, no problem. So she was doing her tax returns, and I was like, this is great. Yeah. But you know, things were simple. You're a resident, limited income, limited expenses. No issues. Like that. No issues. Then I come to the States and now I have a U.S. tax return, a Canadian tax return. There's like tax credits, your double tax, there's all these different things. So I was like, listen, my wife was like, this is beyond my, my, my scope. I was like, listen, this is beyond my scope. You're like, it was but beyond anyway, my scope when I was a resident. So I asked around and, you know, a lot of people said, oh, you know, in the States, you only have one form. You're just, you know, you have one salary. So it's very easy. You can just do it online for free. So I Googled online, you go to H&R Block online, and it's like, file your tax return for free. This is amazing. So I started the process. I'm doing it online. I'm convinced that these free online tax programs are just total BS. I think they're meant to hook you in, to get you started on the process, and about three steps in, you realize this is way <laughs> too complex for me. Yeah. Because there's always this option, like, need help? Pay this for, like, a professional to walk you through. You paid more than your salary. <laughs> I got three steps in and started asking me if I was like a non-resident alien or, you know, You're where like, my dependents are. I was like, what? <laughs> so I ended up just going into a branch. I paid $150. They filed my return for me. Yeah. I just got it done. Just no headaches. Exactly. No headaches. So I assume you're no longer, because you're incorporated now. So I assume you're no longer filing your own taxes. Honestly, it's a funny topic because I talk about this with like the partners all the time at the office. And I talk about it when I come home with Lexi and I talk about what, you know, a bunch of like, we have mutual dental friends, like in dental school. And we talk all the time. I'm not, 
I am so confused when it comes to tax season. Like, and I feel like I'm a pretty intelligent person. I understand most things. And then I, it comes to tax season and I have zero clue what's going on. I have no idea. My accountant probably thinks I'm the dumbest human being because like <laughs> I ask him the same question and he answers it. And I then have to say, hold on, let me clarify. This is what you said, because I still don't understand it. So yeah, I, I've kind of gratitude to the fact that I have an accountant who does that for me. Yeah. And I think, you know, maybe on a future episode, it might be a good idea to get like a proper dental accountant or a business business accountant. I think it's a great idea. The basis of what you need to know, what they're talking about, how it works and how you can benefit and how you can save. Yeah. Honestly, it you're going to realize like, especially next year, well, pretty soon, not even next year, a couple of months from now, when you start working, how confusing things can get. Like, and, and you'll talk to one friend who their accountant says this, and then you'll talk to somebody else who their accountant says a different thing. That's what I don't like about taxes. Like everyone can have their own opinion on things. And it's big money. It can make, it make a big difference. Oh, huge, huge, for sure. H- huge difference. So yeah, I think the whole free tax form is just kind of a bait and switch thing, but maybe, maybe it's just because I'm naive and useless at this stuff. The next thing I want to talk to you about was some good news. Passed my A-bombs written exam. That's the US board exam. Nice. Not surprising, but it's still, it's still a nice weight off the shoulder right there. Nice weight off the shoulder. So I passed the Canadian written, the NDSC, so I can get my license. I passed the U.S. written, which doesn't really get you anything, except it makes you no. eligible to do the U.S. oral. You're halfway so, there. You're halfway there. Yeah. It's like a step to do, but, you know, doesn't do much. Uh, but still good news. And then, you know, the RCDC oral is actually coming up this month, end of this month, end of May. This is the May episode. And that's so. your last Canadian exam. Last Canadian exam. It's an oral exam. First time doing uh, a real oral exam. You know, we would do mock yep. exams at McGill twice a year. So that was great practice. Yep. But no, it's different. Different in the actual exam. You're going to feel a little more pressure, a little And it's virtual, right? It's virtual. So luckily it's virtual. There's all these rules. They've set it up pretty securely, pretty well. I, I kind of like the way they did it. And the good thing is it's virtual because if it was in person, there's no way I would have been yeah. able to go back. With the quarantine rules? No, there's no yeah, chance. There's no chance. And, so, and the second thing is good. When you're struggling, you just log off. <laughs> yeah. well, what's that the connections, connections are... i can't hear you <laughs> exactly yeah. the, other, the other nice thing is and don't get me wrong if i could you know choose i obviously would have preferred to have both my exams done at the end of residency for sure like a normal year yeah but the one small benefit i will say is and i don't want to jinx myself on this exam but i do feel like because it's an oral exam and it's case-based during my fellowship, I've done a million more cases. Yeah. I, I just feel like I'm, I'm more confident in managing things, especially in like the operator role. Whereas a resident, you always have the staff kind of telling you what to do, right? No, from a, so, from a practical perspective, you are definitely more prepared this year for clinical scenarios than you were last year. There's no question about that. Yeah, exactly. So I think that is one advantage of it being delayed for me at least, but we'll see how it goes. Speaking of some you know experience in clinical situations, just want to give you a quick update on a couple of cases and, and things that I was doing now more recently in the past couple of months. As I get to the end of my fellowship, you know, I have, only have about six to seven weeks left in the fellowship. It's crazy to think about. But one of the things is I've started doing orthognathic consults by myself. They'll have some patients that get referred to our fellow clinic for orthognathic surgery. They only let us do it kind of towards the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Once we've, you know, shadowed enough consults with Fairhill or we've done enough um, orthognathic surgery, things like that. So what I've realized is when you're doing it, you know, by yourself for the first time, I mean, this sounds obvious, but it's, it takes a while to get in the mojo of what you want to say and communicate. Now you're, you're in private practice. You obviously probably took a while to get, you know, your wisdom to yep. spiel under control. Yep. But the thing about wisdom teeth is, you know, there's four wisdom teeth. There's the sinus, there's the nerve, there's whatever, dry socket, whatever you want to tell it's them about. It's pretty, like it, it, it's pretty repetitive when it comes to wisdom teeth. 
Yeah. yeah. Whereas with orthomathic surgery, it's like you got to talk to them about braces, pre-op, post-op, the operation, the hospital, the recovery, function, aesthetics, nerve complications, needing family support, diet, nutrition. Like there's it's way more involved. Things. Way more involved. It's way more involved. And I've noticed from watching, you know, Farrell do a ton of consults this year and even some of the other partners, they do have a skill, you know, they, they, they've got it down now. There's minor variations along the path, but they, they do know what they're going to say in the same way. It's just, it takes a while because there's so much to get through. Yeah. So tough, tough to work on all these different things you want to talk to people about, but I think it becomes easier as you practice it. I, but I think that, that you're getting to do that in that kind of controlled setting in the sense that, no, you're not being overseen by anyone right now. But I mean, controlled in the sense that you do have a backup. And honestly, Wendell, it's not where you're going to end up working. So it's nice to have this practice there so that when you come back, you are going to come back more polished. Yeah, that's true. You want to get, you want to get the, the rust out of the way now yeah. rather than when you're in your, your hometown market. A couple other uh, notes of things I've been doing more now recently in the past few months. A lot of zygomatic implant cases. Nice. Bunch of zygomatic implant cases and a bunch. Okay, I would say a few zygomatic implant cases, but a ton of like all on four, immediate conversion, um, upper, lower at the same time. That's um, huge. Now, granted, it is under GA. We talked about how you have GA days mm-hmm. and how that kind of opens up that, you know, portal to you as an as a opportunity to do that. I know there are people in Canada that do it under IV sedation. Even at our own practice, Wendell, like, even though we have the capabilities of doing it under GA, some of the, some of the partners still, like, if the GA days are full for that month, they'll still do it under sedation. Man, I don't know how they do it because, to be honest, once I've done it on GA, it's it's impossible oh. to go back to the other way. Yeah, yeah. But so for us, it's different because you've now you're at the beginning of your career, and the only way you've seen it is kind of GA, and that's where you learned. These guys mm. were doing intersedation and then got the luxury of GA, so they can always go back. Yeah. Okay. I see what you're saying. It's all how you were trained. Yeah. Yeah. So that's been cool to do all those cases and actually, you know, get to get to do them from start to finish. Done some of them guided, some of them analog without guided. So you get a kind of mix of both. So no, that's, that's been really that's good. That's very impressive because again, that is private practice oral surgery. Exactly. And luckily one of the big guys, one of the partners here, Rick Capitan, he, he's big into the, you know, cleft surgery, kind of known for that, mm-hmm. but he does a ton of like all on four immediate convergence. Wow. It's almost every Friday he has like one massive case. Wow. It's crazy. That's impressive. Especially during the slow time of more than that. I think it's nice to have those cases yeah. to just like do something else. And then speaking, speaking of, you know, pushing the limits of in, in office surgeries. So we've talked a lot about how we do jaw surgeries. We'll do single jaw, tri- double jaw, triple jaw, OSA, genoglossus. You pretty much do anything. Anything, yeah. really anything, send them home. Well, you know, one of the other partners, Wahid Mohammed, he does... Not only does he do like normal oral surgery stuff, he does a lot of cosmetic stuff. Oh, nice. And he, you know, was going to do a cleft rhinoplasty. So I was like, that's pretty cool. I've seen rhinoplasties, you know, before my residency and, and fellowship. But I've never seen a cleft rhinoplasty. But he was like, you know, it's a cleft case. We don't have cartilage. So you think, oh, you can, where are you going to get from the ear? Where are you going to go? Blah, blah. No, you know, it's in office. We did a, you know, a rib graft. <laughs> or like, you say rib harvest. Like, like, honestly, things that you would never say in Canada or never think of saying it's a different world. It's a different world. And you know, it said, you know, cleft rhinoplasty plus minus rib graft. And I was like, come on, man, we're not gonna do a rib graft. You're gonna you're gonna look and you're gonna say, we don't need it. There's this, we can graft from the septum or blah blah blah. Within two minutes of the case, he's like, listen, this guy's collapsed. We have no cartilage. We're going to the rib. <laughs> you're like, and I'm going outside. Like what's happening here? <laughs> yeah. That's, it was really cool. That is super impressive though. Like and again it's just what you Kind of what you get used to, right? Like when you told me at the beginning that you guys are sending your triple dolls home right after surgery, I looked at you like you were crazy. 
now I'm used to you telling me that. So it's like, okay, that's kind of standard now. It's just like, how far can you push it, you yeah. know? Yeah. <laughs> and I, I just thought the rib graph was wild. I was like, oh, man, this is getting dicey now. Imagine how stressful it was, like harvesting that thing. <laughs> no, but you know what? It doesn't even surprise me. You're in a country where there's no COVID. That is true. And I'm still locked in, even though we have no cases compared to you guys. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so that was a pretty wild uh, clinical case. The next thing I want to talk to you is kind of a funny thing. Lennox is now almost eight months old. Yeah, time's flying. He's in a pretty cute phase of like, you know, super smiley, kind of plays, interacts, you know, still exhausting and a nightmare, you know, with sleeping and yep. lack of sleep and things like that. But definitely, definitely a cute phase. But one thing I've noticed, one of the, one of the best benefits by far is, and you'll see this Oscar soon enough, I'm sure, when you guys decide to take the next step. But once you become a parent, especially maybe as a dad, people just treat you differently. Better or worse? Take Lennox, oh, way better. Oh, I, I will take Lennox on walks to the park or, you know, to get a coffee or something. Everyone's like, oh, my God, he's so cute. Oh, wow. Look at the baby. And then, you know, the people are opening doors for you. People are offering things. So you go ahead of them. You know, they're just it's it's amazing. You just take, you just take him everywhere now just for the perks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> just take him for the perks. So people people. And also another good thing. People are super understanding when they see like a parent with a new a newborn. You know, they understand that, you know, they might make noise or they might need access to this or maybe they need to go first or, you know, they people just really understand, I find. You're pretty much Especially, just butting every line you see now. Well, I, you know, I, I, won't, I won't butt the line, <laughs> but they'll, they'll be, they'll, people will be more understanding if I'm waiting in line and the guy's just going crazy yelling yeah. and all that kind of stuff. You pinch your own baby. It's like, okay, come on. What are you doing, Wendell? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So definitely a huge perk of being a parent is just, you know, the understanding, especially from other people that are parents, because they, they look, you know, like, listen, we know. You've been there. We went, We've been there. Yeah. We know it's rough. Like keep pulling through. So it's been tough, but it's but it's been great having them around the past few months, and especially all the perks you get for sure. That's exciting with a little little baby. And then the last current event I wanted to bring up was you know as I mentioned the fellowship coming in, so I'm looking ahead to what's going to happen. You know when I come back to Toronto, still working on you know the final legal paperwork and things like that, but. I'm happy to announce I can share, you know, with the audience that the general trend of where I'm going is, you know, a private practice setting, but definitely with uh, an academic component. I'm looking to do full private practice with part-time academics at U of T with the residents there, uh, trying to do at least Joining the dark side. Joining the the dark side (laughs) at U of T, betraying my McGill alma mater, but trying to at least one day a week there, get involved with, you know, helping them with trauma, with their orthodontic clinic, with regular clinic, things like that. So... Uh, definitely looking forward to that and something I really, really wanted to do. So really happy that uh, there was an opportunity there and I'm really excited to start there. I think that's exciting on both fronts, both one, your professional career starting in the private practice, but two, you're getting to keep something that you, you wanted to, right? You like academia, you've done this fellowship, you have a lot to bring to residents. I think it's great on both fronts. Yeah, no, definitely. And that was, that was the goal. And, and, you know, a lot of us just getting lucky with the timing, to be yep. honest. I did want to coin a new phrase because this came to me and I'm shocked that no one has thought of this before. So I'm claiming it right now. Maybe you've heard, I don't think you've heard of this before because I haven't even told you. So, you know, everyone always says you want to be in private practice or you want to be in academics or you want to do like part time or hybrid. Even I, in a recent like lecture to the residents, I was like hybrid practice and said, I'm looking to do a hybrid practice. I've come up with a term. Let me, I'm just spitballing here, but this is okay. how I'm going to refer to my life going forward. I'm going into private pracademics. I'm never going to use that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a perfect fusion of private practice and academics. 
Yeah, there's a reason it's not been used before. I'm going <laughs> to leave it to you. <laughs> I, I, I had a feeling you would hit on it because, yeah. you know, you're, you're a bougie private practitioner. But <laughs> yeah. listen, going forward, I'm going to call it private academics. Okay. All right. Maybe, maybe it'll catch on. Maybe it won't. We'll see. All right. That concludes our current events. Now we're going to jump into a brand new segment, our anniversary segment. All right, Oscar, in this segment, what we wanted to do is each year on the annual you know, anniversary of the podcast, we wanted to look back on the last year and more specifically the, the guests that we had. You know, we're really fortunate on this podcast that we're able to attract some top-notch guests and they're always super nice. They're generous with their time. They come on. We have a great time with them. They're We've funny. been super they, lucky. Super lucky. Super lucky. So what we did is you know, in order to kind of give a shout out to these guests and remember them from the past year, we actually reached out to them and asked them to send us a quick audio clip with the one thing that they that you should learn from their episode. So if you've listened to their episode already, this is going to kind of jog your memory. And if you haven't listened to that episode, maybe this will kind of entice you to, to go back and listen now. So first up, let's start out with episode two, where we had uh, Dr. Lee McFadden from the University of Manitoba. Hey, Teeth and Titanium. This is Lee McFadden from Episode 2. Congratulations on your success over the past year. If you could take only one thing from my episode, I hope that it would be that whether you treat the mandible or maxilla first, and whether you use VSP or not, the most important factor for success in orthognathic surgery is to do a, a thorough clinical examination. This will provide you with a proper diagnosis on which you can base your treatment. Best wishes for the years to come. Awesome. So that was Lee. Really great message there. Super, super nice person. Also like that he said, best of luck in the years to come. That's an implicit faith that this podcast yeah. is going to go on. For, unless he means just like us in our personal lives and not the actual Either podcast. way, I'm going to take it. Either way. Either, either way, I'm going to take it. You're right. Either way. We're, we're, if, yeah. Whether or not it's a podcast. It's a positive. Or whether or not he means in my <laughs> private academics. I don't know. <laughs> it, could, it could be either. It's, Who knows? We'll <laughs> It still sounds oh, terrible. I'm just going to say it so many times that eventually you're going to get used yeah, to it. I'm going to forget about it. Yeah. <laughs> Loved his overall message. I mean, people that remember Lee's episode uh, will remember just the absolute wild approach to orthognathic surgery. But I got to say, I agree with him. You know, the most important thing is your clinical exam. You can't skip that. And I find the closer I get to the end of fellowship, the more I realize the less dependent I am on, you know, numbers and yeah. kind of theories and things like that and measurements. And the more dependent I am on, on my clinical exam. Yeah. And, and he's so right. Whatever technique you're using, if you don't have a proper clinical exam, it doesn't matter what you use, VSP, model surgery, or just hand articulation. It's not going to look good if, if you don't have a proper clinical exam going into it. Exactly. And just one side anecdote, ever, ever since the Lee McFadden episode aired, you know, a bunch of people down here listen to it, a bunch of the partners listen to it. I, I, I brought it up as like, you know, this wild kind of way of doing orthodontic surgery. And we've incorporated into kind of our jargon. I mean, you hate on private academics, but doing the McFadden, this has become a thing now. So but see, example, I like that. Yeah, I know yeah. it sounds way better. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Okay, yeah. we, we get it. Yeah. You hate my term. It's okay. <laughs> but that's pretty awesome that a Canadian oral surgeon now has a term down there. He has a term down here. And, yeah. and he will. Going forward, people bring it up. I don't even bring it up. People, other people saying, you know, we don't, we don't do jaw surgery the way he does it, where he cuts both jaws and then, you know, freehands it. But for example... 
We had a case where we did mandible first, fixing the mandible, went to the maxilla, down fractured the maxilla, and had a hardware failure on one side of the mandible. The screws like popped out. Yep. So you're thinking, oh no, like my maxilla is free and my mandible is free on one side. What yeah. am I supposed to do here? And people are like, oh, we just got to McFadden it. There you, you know, go. And that fits perfect. Spot. Yeah, it fits perfectly. And, you know, that name is kind of an epic name now and, and will be going forward, I think. And, and I'll definitely use it in my future practice. One question for you. Was that blown fixation your side? It was. Oh, <laughs> It was, trust me, they, they ragged on me so much for it. I, I can imagine. It. Like, oh, it was. I, I'm just I'm just doing the case. And I'm like, you know, this is awesome from a learning point of view because yeah. you want to see these complications. You want to see the bad cases. So you learn from how the experts fix sure. it. And now that I've seen how they fix it, I'm like, wow, that's not what I would have thought of doing, but that makes sense. But yeah, it, it just still sucks. sucks. Yeah, it sucks that it's yeah, your yeah. In that it, moment, it sucks. But in your long-term career, it's probably one of the best things that could have happened for you. Yeah. yeah, I know. Yeah, of course, of course it was my side. And of course, they let me know. That. <laughs> so uh, next up, we had Dr. Tony Shahadi from McGill. He was on episode four. Let's take a listen to him. Hey, Teeth and Titanium. This is Tony Shahadi from episode number four. I've been asked to take to provide one thing from my episode to take away. And it looks like I have three things to share to take away. Uh, the first is thank you, Wendell and Oscar, for developing this great podcast. It goes a long way towards spreading the word about our beautiful specialty and in some ways bringing our community together as oral and maxillofacial surgeons. I'm really looking forward to hearing what you guys can pull off in year number two, and I'm really optimistic to continue to hear your content. The second thing is I'd like to reach out as a call out to all oral surgeons in our country to at least consider becoming members of the Canadian Association. And if you're already our members, don't be shy to try to figure out how you can get involved with our association and at least participate actively in our calendar of annual events. The third is, don't be shy to reach out to us to ask any questions about how you can develop your own social media channels and how you can participate in spreading the word about our specialty to the world at large and to patients and to your local communities. Thank you so much for listening to us. That was awesome. So thanks so much to Tony. You know, he was our number one supporter. He still uh, is. Of the podcast. Yeah, he probably still is actually the number one supporter of the podcast. And, you know, I got to say, social media, you know, we talked about on this episode, it's just becoming so prevalent. The most recent thing I saw, which I think is old at this point, maybe you guys even have it on your website, is when you go to a website, a little chat bubble pops up and it's yeah. like, hey, do you have a question? And it's Ask not for like help. a robot. Ask for help. And then you type in your message and it'll pull up like a receptionist or someone that will answer you live. Yeah. Yeah. And and honestly, like you said, social media, it's not like it, it's a new thing. It's now the norm. Like everyone is doing it. And if you're not, you're falling behind. And I think Tony's done a great job, not just for us or for himself, but for oral surgeons in Canada. I think he's really spearheading trying to get our name out. So I, I think we owe him a lot. He's been great. Yeah, he's trying to promote the specialty. He's trying to get the word out. And I think, you know, he's always been really appreciative that this podcast brings the community together, gets the word out. And he's huge on support for the podcast because he thinks that when we collaborate together, when we do these initiatives, it only benefits the specialty. Yeah. It gets, you know, gets knowledge about our specialty and more. So definitely agree with what he said about becoming a member and attending the events. I think it's absolutely huge for collaboration in the community and for honestly supporting the profession. So I think it would be great if, you know, membership can increase and, and people can support the events. And especially now, let's say things start to open back up when we can really have hold 
yearly events again, that's when we really need to show our support. Yeah, exactly. So thanks to Tony for that message. We really appreciate it. By the way, Oscar, before I play the next message, I don't know if you'll be able to hear this and, and maybe, you know, people listening to the episode, you might be able to hear some background noise. I, I'm going to go ahead and preemptively apologize for that. And the reason for that, hopefully, you know, this will kind of fall into the people are okay with you when you're a new parent, they understand things. I can't record in my apartment or podcast anymore because Lennox goes to sleep early and he's a light sleeper. If I record with you and I'm laughing, I'm chuckling, I'm talking loud, he's going to wake up. Lennox is so owning I'm, owning you down there, eh? <laughs> so I'm like huddled in like a conference room closet somewhere in the apartment building as people walk by. And the uh, at first I was confused. I'm like, you had a nice background. They're like, what's going on with you? Did you upgrade your condo or something? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not so much. So yeah. hopefully it won't be too much background noise, but I'm sure people will understand. So the next episode we had was actually a, a double episode. Our first double episode, we had Ben Felix from PWO Capital. He was episode five and six. You know, we've said many times that he's the most listened to episode because it's all about money and investing and, you know, your financial <laughs> future. And people love that stuff. So let's hear from Ben. Hey, Teeth and Titanium. This is Ben Felix for episodes five and six. If you could take only one thing from my episodes, it would be that low-cost total market index funds are the most sensible investment for most people. That's Perfect. awesome. Perfect. Short, to the point, get, and everyone's going to, well, everyone's writing that down right now, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I loved it. So, so succinct and so to the point. It's totally his style. And I completely agree with what he said. And it's also funny just listening to it because listening back is like, you know, we're talking about surgery, we're talking about social media practices, we're talking about, you know, other stuff in the future. But it's like, this is just about money and like, yeah. you know, your investments in your future. It's just awesome. And his episodes were great. And, you know, the, we made them also just to be a resource forever for the future, for new residents, new surgeons, go back, listen to it. And just get off the, on the right foot from the beginning. And I think that's going to really, really help people. I know you found also those episodes really helpful. I thought, I thought they were huge. Like I, you clearly had thought of this beforehand or had like, I don't know, put your foot into, into investing a little bit more than it clearly I had. So for me, those two episodes were amazing. Yeah, great stuff. And I did want to play one other thing for you, Oscar, because, you know, Ben Felix has his own podcast, the Rational Reminder podcast, which is just about investing. And just out of the blue on a recent episode, there was a funny segment. And I just wanted to play that for everyone uh, so you can listen to it here. Now, there's a whole other question that I don't have the answer for, which is how do you evaluate who is actually an expert? I was waiting for that. <laughs> I think that's a a harder question to answer because you know even educational standards may not be enough. You know there are physicians probably who don't do as good of a job as other physicians. So other than listening to their podcast and getting a feel for. <laughs> The Physicians Podcast? Well, I, I guess that could be it too. We actually, we had a guest, Dr. Wendell Mascarenhas yeah. on our podcast, who does have his own podcast. It's called Teeth and Titanium. I was a guest on it. <laughs> so if I was going to get a dental surgery, maybe I would go and listen to yeah. Dr. Mascarenhas' podcast before agreeing to the procedure. <laughs> I hope he doesn't because if he does, he's not going to pick you. <laughs> He's going to come see you. <laughs> especially, after, especially after you called me out for blowing that left side. Uh, exactly. That that's, what, that's what I'm getting at. <laughs> <laughs> this was just so funny when I was listening to it. And it kind of tied back to what we were talking about before, how 
this podcast has, has educated us. Mm-hmm. It, it's made us better surgeons, made us better practitioners. We hope it's it's improved other people. But, you know, he, they bring up a great point. How do you know who the experts are? And especially, you know, we talked about social media. The one issue with social media is everyone's opinion now becomes like gospel truth. That's one. And the other thing is everyone shows you their best life and doesn't show you any of any of the mistakes, any of the shitty cases. They show you everything that's perfect. And, and honestly, it's just not that way. Exactly. And that actually ties beautifully into our next guest, Mark Engelstad, mandible fractures. We talked with him about all about it, but also just like philosophy on training and life. It was just such a great interview. We really had a great time with them. And that was in December, episode eight. So let's hear from Mark. Hey, Wendell and Oscar. This is Mark Engelstad. And if you could take only one thing from episode Ocho, it would be don't blame the patient for your bad outcomes. Usually when we do this, this is something, you know, behavior based that the patient did. They chewed something or engaged in some behavior that we have blamed uh, the bad outcome on. Instead of doing that, we should ask ourselves, what part of human behavior did my treatment fail to account for? Because only by registering errors can we build a truer internal model of the world that is better at anticipating the pitfalls and problems in the future. We want to build an internal model that understands better how the world works. Your future patients depend on this process. This is why experienced doctors are preferred, because we've made a lot more errors. And because of those errors, we have a better understanding of what works and what doesn't work. Blaming the patient short circuits the pathways of learning that we need to get better and locks us into a repeated cycle of avoidable failure. So don't blame the patient for your bad outcomes. And Wendell and Oscar, congratulations on a year of great oral and maxillofacial surgery podcasts. I hope you guys keep going for many years to come. Honestly, like I've told you before, he was probably my favorite interview that we had. Just because it wasn't just oral surgery, I think his view on life and the perspective he gave us that, that as young surgeons, we need to learn, I thought was great. Yeah, I just think we learned so much from that talk, way more than just about mandibular fracture. I also like that there's a common theme in these messages that they're saying best of luck in the years to come. And now they're kind of saying more like podcasting wise, and they like the podcast. So I think we're getting some good, solid, positive feedback too now. There is a selection bias here. I mean, there were there were our guests, so we, we kind of forced them failed. to do this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so if the podcast fails. It's kind of an indictment on the entertainment of their guest episodes, I guess. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of like the word for academics. <laughs> One thing I will say about Mark's comment because I totally agree. You know, don't blame the patient for your outcomes, and it's hard to do. And when he even when he said it, we knew it's hard to do. And as a new surgeon, even harder to do. Oh, Trying to get street even care, harder, even harder. Since that episode, I've realized. Another aspect that makes it even harder to do. I'm, you know, of the mindset where try and be objective, try and remove emotion and try not to blame the patient. And you'll, you'll notice, you know, we were joking about how, you know, the fixation field on the left side. And my reaction was not, oh, you know, what, what, what was the screws or the yeah. instruments or what happened there? My reaction was, why did this happen? What did I do? What did I not do? And how can I prevent it in the future? At no point did my mindset think, oh, how, who can I blame really quickly? Yeah. Now, granted, this is a little bit easier because, I mean, there's no one really you can blame your intra-op. You can't really blame the patient, right? But you can blame the, the instrument fixation or the hardware or the assistant. There's a lot of things you can still blame. 
What I think is the hardest part about that mentality is 90%, maybe 80% of people around you are not following the same mentality. They're blaming everyone. They're not talking about their bad outcomes. They're, you know, everything's rosy, everything's perfect. So you feel ashamed. Yeah. You feel like here I am, I had a failure or a complication. I'm blaming myself so I can get better, but I feel like I'm making myself look like a terrible surgeon because nobody else is admitting to anything wrong with and, their practice. And I think that's, you don't maybe know what it's right now, but I think that's the importance of joining a practice where you feel comfortable with, not just in terms of, oh, your work environment, but the people environment. And so I will give credit to, first of all, the work environment in my office is great. Like I love working with the guys, but on a personal level, they're also awesome. I have some, I work with some super talented people, like do the amazing work. And sometimes I come up and I'm like, oh, like I can't blink. Like, how did this not work for me? Or like, why did this fail? And they'll be like, oh, it's failed like hundreds of times in my hands. And they're all very quick to say, like, it's not going to work out. Some days it's just not going to be your day and things that you know you can do well, you just don't end up doing well. And hearing that from these super talented surgeons makes you feel way more okay at agreeing to your mistakes, which is what you're saying. If you're surrounded by people who say, I never do anything wrong, it's hard to admit that you've done something wrong. Well, I was going to say, and one thing that's even harder for you, I just realized is you're an employee. Yeah. So you're now having to admit a failure on a patient to a partner in their practice with their name on the wall. And, yep. You know, and, that must be even harder for and, you. And honestly, there is no fear talking to them completely openly because that's how nice they are. And like, that's how understanding and they take it as a teaching moment where they're like, okay, what did you do here? They're like, oh, you know what? That's still how I would have done it. Maybe it just didn't work out. Or they'll be like, no, you know what? I wouldn't have done that. Like they are awesome about it. Yeah, no, that's great. And I think the appropriate response to someone, you know, opening up about a complication is, you know, empathy and then also relating to them saying that happened to you if it has happened. Yep. And if it hasn't happened, you know, just talk through them. Be like, what'd you do? Maybe consider yes. this. Maybe that's just bad luck. You know, just be just be honest. Yep. Sometimes it's as simple as, listen, man, you know, that, that was bad luck, but also you should consider doing this way instead next time. And they'll be like, that's genius. I didn't think about it that way. You'll, you'll, realize once, you'll realize once you start working, like I know we talk pretty often, but once you really start working on your own private practice, how important other oral surgeons that you get along with just on a personal level will matter to you because you'll call them when you had a, a day that wasn't great and you'll be like, oh, my day wasn't great. And if you don't have that support that understands what an oral surgery day is like, it's hard to vent to somebody else. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So yeah, so I think that's great advice and, and something we both really appreciate all right, our last audio clip is from Dr. John Nail, good buddy of mine. He was on episode 10 talking about TMJ surgery, and let's hear from John. Hey, Teeth and Titanium, this is John Nail from episode 10. If there was one thing you should take away from my uh, discussion is uh, patient selection. Uh, remember, if a patient shows up for an orthognathic consult, 100% of the patients are going to need surgery. But if a patient shows up for a TMJ consultation, you have no idea if they need surgery or conservative management. Uh, use your patient questionnaire. Uh, find a reliable, conservative TMJ specialist to work as a team uh, so that you can uh, make sure that the majority of patients that end up on your schedule actually need surgery so this That's is huge. as far as practical exactly as far as practical advice goes towards someone's practice 
I thought this was just an absolute pearl. I actually asked him, you'll remember on his episode, he talked about how he has a stack of triage mm-hmm. consults he goes through that's on his desk each day. I, I just went to his desk and there was like literally 15. And I was like, when is this from? He's like the past two days. Yeah. Like, that's insane. And he said, yeah, you got to go through them. And he has that questionnaire he talked about and he filters them too. Should this be conservative or should this be on my schedule eventually or my schedule soon? And he has a system he goes through, he described it in his episode, but I just think it's so crucial, especially in the TMJ landscape. It is. And so you'll realize it more when you actually are in private practice and you either own your place or you're an associate somewhere because you'll see how many TMJ consults are coming through the door. And it's honestly, it's only getting worse, to be honest with you. Like nobody's really wanting to see them. So everyone is sending them to oral surgeons. And if, if they're not triaged properly, it becomes, it's a, it's a bit of a difficult consult to have because you see this patient, you then realize fairly quickly, this is not a surgical candidate. You're still going to be charged a consult fee, which for a TMJ consult, it's much higher than a regular consult fee. The patient kind of leaves feeling like they didn't get much out of it, even though you know you're not doing, you can't do anything for them because they're not a surgical patient. And then you leave a little bit feeling uncomfortable because you know they left not that happy, but you did everything right in the terms of what the consult was meant to be there. Are you a surgical or not surgical patient? And so having that way to filter patients before they come into your chair so they maybe they don't waste your time and they don't waste their own time. I think that's super important. Yeah. And also for people that might be afraid of surgery, for them to come to see you and then all of a sudden you're talking about these, you know, invasive surgery, oh. they might be a little bit shy. They might yeah. be a little bit scared or, or you know, it yeah. might be more than they expected. So it is nice to have a, a good relationship with a conservative specialist, but, you know, very difficult. You yeah. Know, the, the, the demand far outweighs the supply. Yep. And they're not simple consults. They're very complex. A lot of review of imaging, a lot of review of uh, clinical history, medications. It's always way more than other consults. So, yeah, definitely a difficult field and something you really need to establish, you know, a system for. So that concludes our special anniversary segment, something that we're hoping to do each year, looking back uh, at the guests that we saw and maybe trying to get some pearls from them. So really, really appreciate all the guests that came on and, you know, donating their time and their expertise to not only us, but all our listeners. So thanks all them. And if you, if you want to be a guest on the show, or if you can think of someone you think would be a, a great guest on the show, do reach out to us, teethandtitaniumomfs at gmail.com. We're always open for new guests or new types of ideas of guests, different topics. You know, we're, we're willing to go to a, a wide range of topics here, as long as it's relevant to the CAOMS community, you know, we're happy to bring someone yeah. on board. So something new and different is interesting. Exactly. So that concludes our anniversary segment. Let's move on to Journal Club. All right, Oscar, this uh, month in the JOMS, we scoured it and we found, you know, a, a great article that we wanted to talk about here. I would say um, it's a great article just from the topic that it's talking about. Exactly. And as soon as I saw the topic, I was like, this is dicey, though, because the results of this can severely impact, you know, if the, our profession. If the results were on the other side, we maybe wouldn't be talking about it. 100%. <laughs> we would not be talking about it. And I would hope that, well, no, I wouldn't hope Jameis would block the article because, you know, this is science. But I would hope they wouldn't submit the article. Yeah. <laughs> I, would, I would hope they'd put it near the end of the, of the article. <laughs> yeah, maybe like an online-only version, yeah. like a behind a paywall. <laughs> With a password. And the reason for that is the article we're going to talk about is safety of outpatient procedural sedation administered by oral and maxillofacial surgeons, the Mayo Clinic experience in 17,634 sedations. This was over the years of 2004 to 2019. Yep. It's by 
Weimer et al. and pre-screening. Basically a bunch of OMFS residents and staff. There's a ton of them because it's over 15 years. It's lots of people on the paper, but you know, it's over 15 year time span. So I'm sure everyone wanted it on the action. And also everyone was probably submitting data for, for that whole you know 15 year period. We love it in a pre-screening man manner because it's an oral surgery publication. It's from the Mayo Clinic, which is uh, well known. Yep. It's over a 15 year period and 17,634 sedations. <laughs> That's not a little sample size. No, it's great. And one of the things the article talks about is when you're looking to discover the prevalence of rare events, so adverse events in this, you know, in this field should be rare. Mm -hmm. you, need a, you need a huge yeah. sample size. You can't size. do a sample size massive. of two because it's like, okay, yeah. it's uncommon already. Sure, you're a zero. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You need a massive sample size. So they did that and that's great. So in the intro, they kind of talked about, you know, there's a long history of documented safety of providing anesthesia in conjunction with oral surgery procedures. But this model has recently been called into question in medical statements, anesthesiology statements, and everyone's got conflicts of interest. I mean, the anesthesiologists clearly don't want anyone else no. doing this. No. And then the oral surgeons, you know, we're biased. We clearly want to do this. So you have these con conflicting interests and you're trying to get, you know, good data. And that was kind of the purpose of this article was to what are the frequency of adverse anesthetic events and what are the risk factors associated with that? And is our rate of adverse events comparable to other non-anesthesiology specialties? Because that's the big or, question right there. Exactly. Or is it worse? So they did a retrospective cohort study. That was IV sedation on ambulatory oral uh, and maxillofacial surgical procedures over 15 years. Now, one thing that was interesting, I thought, was the inclusion criteria was 14 years old and above. I do think maybe, I mean, I would have to look at the data, but maybe in a younger population, a pediatric population, they may be more vulnerable or more yep. prone to kind of adverse events. I do not have a ton of experience with that age bracket. I wanted to ask you if you do. And so I would probably second what you're saying there, just to the fact that even if you're just going to do a sedation in Canada, you need another special designation if you're doing PEDS, right? You need PALS. You don't just need ACLS. You need PALS to also do it. So that, I just think, shows inherently there's there's a little either more risk or there's differences when you're dealing with the child population. So for them to completely exclude it, I didn't love that, to be honest with you. And I'll tell you, in our office, most of our kids, 12 and under, they're being booked on our GA days. Maybe that's just because we have the comfort of having our GA days. But yeah, realistically, I don't sedate very many kids. I was going to say, did you have an age cutoff? So it's around 12 for you guys, you think? 12 is the PALS cutoff in, in, in Canada. Yeah. Okay. So, so those are the Yeah. Okay. That's good to know then. But I agree. Very, very trouble, troubling population and, and difficult population to administer sedation for. So they excluded that. That's something you do need to know. Also, they had a registered nurse monitoring patients preoperatively, postoperatively. In the room, they had an attending OMFS or resident. And the, it is single provider. That person is administering the anesthesia and performance surgery. They had three dental assistants. And that's where I was going to, I was about to ask you because I have really have no experience from the States, but I've seen, and this is again, getting back to social media, I see a lot on social media and I've realized it looks like in the American system, you don't necessarily need a nurse in the actual room. You do not. So oh. yeah, I think it's probably state by state and legislature based, but I think you can do it where the oral surgeon is the provider about the anesthetic and the surgery and you only need dental assistance. I don't know if there's level of dental assistance that qualify or how that exactly works. I know that we do have nurses at our practice here, but I think it kind of depends state by state. But oh, okay. I also thought that the numbers were a little bit weird because they seem to be kind of overstaffed and maybe that helped. But I realized 
They're talking about one dental assistant across, yep. one dental assistant administering the anesthetic under the orders of the surgeon. And the third one, I think, is like a floater, like a circulator. Yeah. I don't think they have three designated assistants room. Because by the way, I don't know about your residency, but we had like no dental assistants that you know were dedicated to us. We would have you know one helping with clinic and seating patients and helping with the clinic turnover, but it was residents assisting residents most of the time. So I've been out and been private practice for two years and the staff sometimes still get surprised because I'll start a case, not a sedation case, but let's say a local. I frozen, like picked up the instruments before anyone's even in the room because you're so used to just doing things on your own. <laughs> And they're like, yeah. oh, sorry, doctor. Like, we didn't realize you came in the room. I'm like, no, guys, it's okay. Like, it's not a big deal. Like, it's fine. But yeah, you just get so used to doing things on your own as a resident. So having three, that's crazy. Yeah, I thought that, I saw that too. And, and I wonder if having so many, you know, staff, because one of them, it says, was solely responsible for patient monitoring. I mean, that's going to help avoid things, obviously. But the primary outcome variable for the study was the presence of adverse events related to the sedation. So makes sense. And the results now. They did 17,634 sedations and administered to over 16,000 patients, unique patients over 15 year span. We've kind of been through that. They identified 16 adverse events. So 0.1%. Yep. And of the 16, two were combative patients. So they aborted the surgery. Three were combative patients where they completed the surgery. Two medication errors, seven emergency department visits within 24 hours, and two hospital admissions within 24 hours. There were no patient deaths uh, across the entire cohort. There was no statistical significance with the medications they used, the sedatives they used, the ASA classification, gender. So all of that made sense to me. I was surprised the ASA classification didn't really matter. But honestly, with such a low prevalence, probably hard to kind of distinguish between the two. Adverse effects could have even really been lower because some of the things that they were classifying as an adverse effect uh, event, I probably would not have classified, to be honest with you. Totally agree. So they detailed exactly what each of the 16 were. One was, you know, a patient was treated for a migraine. Yeah, like four of them had syncopal events at home. I have a migraine like right now. (laughs) (laughs) Like exactly. Yeah. So that that was a little bit of a soft one. Four people had syncopal events, went to the ER, worked up, everything was fine. They weren't admitted. A combative patient where you perform the procedure still like I don't necessarily say that that's an adverse event. Like, yeah, I would say that's a, not a fun sedation to be running, but I don't think it's an adverse event. Exactly. I totally agree. They had two patients that, you know, with a history of abdominal procedures had postoperative nausea and vomiting, and it was refractory mm-hmm. to their antiemetics so they had to go to the ER. Once again, I mean, these if this is a realm of adverse events, I mean, we'll take that. Yeah, every day. Like, again, you obviously don't want this every day, but but yeah, like nothing here really stood out to me. I'm like, oh, like that. Yeah, yeah. That's not going to sit well with the office. Two patients erroneously received medications to which they were had documented allergies. So that's a legitimate error. Yep. They gave them, it was noted intraoperatively, which is good. They gave them prophylactic uh, Benadryl and then no evidence of anaphylaxis or other signs. So they kind of got lucky on those two and no interventions, ER visits, hospital admissions were required. So that's not to say that that's going to happen every time. That's unfortunate that it did happen for those two patients. It's very lucky that nothing adverse happened, but it does kind of show, listen, of all these times, there were still two times where despite documented allergies, they kind of forgot about yep. it or just kind of went through their routine. So just a little reminder, you always got to check and maybe, you know, do a little time up there and make sure everyone's kind of aware of allergies. Now, two were admitted to the hospital, first had a syncopal event and was admitted just for observation, got IV fluids, antiemetics, some pain medication and went home. And then the second was having seizure-like activity. So this is the one that to me is, is, is an actual adverse event for me. This is the big one. 
Yeah, you want to go into it a little bit? Yeah, so this is the one that I would say this was more of a true adverse event. This is the one where you get a little bit worked up or a little bit scared. And so, yeah, a patient had the procedure done. Sedation was actually done here and then exhibited some seizure-like activity. They treated him with quite a bit of medication, antihypertensives, lumazenil, naloxone. Everything seemed to be normal, but then the patient started to get diminished responsiveness and they intubated him. So now I think this is a, this is a legit... This is a bad day. Yeah, this is not... You're not happy. No one's happy. This is an adverse event. But taken to the hospital and then it was intubated quite quickly once... Extubated quite quickly once he was at the hospital. Ended up being fine. But I would say this is the one where I would say adverse event completely... You ask any oral surgeon, this is not a fun day for them. Credit to them for successfully intubating, transfer to the hospital. I mean, that's tough. I, I think they, I think they treated that like really well. Like, obviously, we're not there to know the time frame that they did this in. Like, yeah, let's say they intubated after five tries, and we don't know that. Well, maybe that's not as slick. But from what we're getting here, from the medication they gave, from the steps of management they took, and getting into patient intubated and to the ED, it sounds like they handled this pretty well. Yeah, the other thing that would help them, I guess, is because this is at the the hospital clinic, I assume the resident clinic, maybe the ER is just, you know, a floor down yep. or, you know, within the same facility. So that might've helped as well, but no, great management. They talk about the five adverse events that were patient competitiveness. As you said, you know, three of them, it was aborted and completed later under general. And then with two of them, it was just completed. So I think that, as you said, not really an adverse event, even the two that, you know, are combated to the point where you have to, or sorry, the three that yep. are combated to the point where you have to delay for general anesthesia. That's kind of usually those patients are just like, you know, they're too combative. So you saw the procedure, you let them recover and you, you rebook. And that's another thing you're going to learn too, especially if the practice you have, like we keep, I feel like we keep talking about this. If you have a GA option, there's no point in fighting these patients, right? Like there's no point in ruining your day by just having a terrible sedation where it goes longer, you're running behind. If the patient is too combative and you just can't do it and you have the ability to GA them, let's say three days later or four days later or two weeks later into your schedule, why not just reschedule them? Yeah, exactly. So basically their discussion that a mortality rate of 0% adverse event rate of 0.1% in the study are consistent with other outcome-based studies of non-anesthesiologists performing procedural sedation with similar intervention-based definitions of adverse events. You know, they, they compared to a multi-center study of GI practices and their adverse event rate was 0.016 in 24,000 patients, over 24,000 patients. So they, you know, talk about emergency medicine physicians also showing as zero moderate essential outcomes as defined by the, you know, World CIVA International Sedation Task Force consensus definition of an adverse event. They kind of stress the fact that you need to make sure you're defining these adverse events really properly because otherwise, you know, anything can be considered an adverse event. Yeah, or even, nothing. You know, you're, yeah, or nothing, exactly. And they might be underreported, but you're kind of making the point that you thought they were pretty generous yeah. with their definition of adverse event. So overall, a great article. I think, you know, what I thought of is that sedation is absolutely crucial to the profession. It's crucial to patient comfort. It helps with dental anxiety. It helps them have a good experience in the procedure. It makes the procedure usually faster and easier. And my takeaway was that it's great to see that it can be safe and that it's just really important to have, I think, regular drills, uh, crash cart practice, simulations, CE. I think that's the best way you can manage these things. And hopefully you, know, you can avoid these things because Every, every practitioner I talk to that's been in practice for a long time, they say it's always going to happen. You just got to be, you know, calm and prepared yeah. when it happens. Yeah. It's not, it's likely not if it'll happen. It's at one point, will it happen? And have you 
done enough training? Have you done, done enough CE? Have you done enough just on the spot training with your staff that you guys are ready for it when it does happen? And then one funny thing I've always heard is you don't want, you know, the time it happens to be the first time that you've opened the crash cart. Yeah. A hundred percent. Cause you don't know what you're going to find in there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You might not even know how to open it. That's <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> <laughs> all right uh before we conclude our club i just want to give a quick shout out you know uh, we've been kind of going back and forth on you know publications from different places but i gotta give a shout out to my boy jordan Gigliotti from mcgill mcgill slamming another publication in their oscar you know i just, just getting, getting honestly i just think i'm less of a homer because if you want i'll start looking all the uft ones up i just didn't want to well to be fair <laughs> i do look at the I do look at all the public, you know, all the articles and I do kind of look out for names. I mean, if we're being honest, UFT kind of got burned because I think it was last month there might have been a UFT public. That's what I mean. Dr. Dr. Caminiti, so our program director is always like, Oscar, how come you don't mention any of ours? And Wendell keeps talking about his. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was. And I think it was Caminiti that had a publication yeah. last month. Yeah, yeah. Jordan is a great yeah. guy. So shout out to him we for could- sure. We couldn't record last month. So you, <laughs> you, you did that on purpose. You're like, not, t- not this month. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, shout out to Jordan uh, on his article, Fascia cutaneous flaps for refractory intermediate stage osteo necrosis of mandible. It's a time for a shift in management. He did this with, uh, during his fellowship under the supervision of uh, Anthony Morland. You know, great article for those that are uh, interested and, you know, involved in the treatment of ORN kind of like a paradigm shift and uh, a different thought process on approaching them. So it has the potential to be a big article. Um, So super happy for him and definitely check it out if you're interested in that type of thing. All right, that concludes our journal club. Let's move on to our resident reminder. All right, Oscar, for resident reminder this month, I'm doing something a little bit different. I'm correlating it with the case that I had because I think it's a great reminder for everyone. So got a call from the trauma hospital about a month ago and they have an elderly gentleman that was on blood thinners and hit by a rock that went through his windshield oh. and struck him in the face oh. it actually broke on his face and it broke every single bone in his body i'm oh, sorry in his face every single like bone it's in a his face rock yeah, i was gonna say it. <laughs> it broke every single bone on his face except for the frontal bone so no wow. frontal sinus involvement. Otherwise, panfacial fracture, epistaxis. They can't control the bleeding. He's coding. They call me, and they say we can't stop the bleeding. And so hold on. What do we do? You're a staff. You're the one taking us as a staff, eh? Mm-hmm. So there's no backup call for you right now. Like no backup call. I always have the option to call the person if you wanted to. I, but if I want to, if I feel like it's something I can't manage, um, I can always try calling them. But no, I'm the staff. This is my case. I'm being called in. So I go in. And well, first of all, important to know is over the phone, they packed the nose with gauze and I think maybe a rhino rocket or maybe some surgery foam, things like that, mm-hmm. but still not stopping the bleeding. At that point, you got to be thinking as a resident, okay, source of ep- epistaxis, you know, anterior mm-hmm. or posterior. Anterior is Kieselbach's plexus, 85% yeah. of bleeds. Yeah. But if they packed it that many times. Exactly. Posterior bleed, 15% of the time, Woodruff's plexus. Yeah. Now, what can you do? If the anterior pack is not working, then you're thinking, okay, we have to do a posterior pack. Posterior pack, you can do like a, a deeper pack, a ribbon gauze, or you can do a Foley catheter, put it in, you inflate the balloon, yep. pull it back, that's your posterior pack. There's different things you can use. Now- Are you walking them through this on the phone right now or no? No. Okay. At this point, I'm just getting information and they're, they're telling me they've done um, an anterior pack and it's still bleeding. Okay. Now, rightfully so, they've said they have not done a posterior pack because they're concerned he is obviously grossly you know, pan facial fractures yep. 
and they're worried about, you know, ethmoid bone fracture. And, you know, one of the contraindications to a posterior nasal pack or nasal intubation is, you know, a basic skull fractures, yeah. especially at the cribriform plate, ethmoid bone, because that nasal tube can go into the brain. And you start, um, you start intubating the wrong area. Exactly. And there, you know, there's all, you look on the internet, there's all these pictures X-rays or pictures yeah. of exactly of people, you know, with Foley's in the brain yeah. they try to do a posterior pack. Yeah. So I told them over the phone, I said, listen, I'm on my way, but the guy's hemorrhaging to death. You have to do the posterior pack. Mm-hmm. Like now I mean, it's risk have, benefit. Like it's, it's risk benefit. Yeah. Like, yeah, sure. You may you go in the careful. brain, but he will die if you don't. Exactly. Yeah. And the other thing you can do is you can place the Foley into the nasal passage and go until you see it in the oral cavity coming down, posterior orifice, yeah. and then inflate and then pull back. 100%. So I told him, listen, I'm on my way, but you got to do the posterior pack and get this thing going. So they did that. I arrive on the scene and the bleeding's a little bit better. And I see, you know, his whole face is smashed and he's got, you know, an obvious facial laceration. I can see into his maxilla, it's split in half and I can see into the maxillary sinus and I see, see pumping. Mm-hmm. I just see, you know, it's bleeding, it's pooling up. And I'm thinking, okay, you know, I haven't seen the CT scan yet. We haven't been able to get a CT scan yet, but something's bleeding. So I packed the maxillary sinus as well. I think when it comes to these bleeding patients, just pack. Yeah, pack buy us. yourself time. Buy yourself time. Pressure always helps. But remember where you put packs. Yeah. Because it might be a while before you go back to remove yeah. them with the surgery. You yeah. got to keep track. You got to remember that. So I had a nurse, I was telling her, I put three packs in the left maxillary sinus, you know, write that down. And then I, you know, made notes that I would remember. So we control the bleeding. We get the CT scan. Now at this point, the interventional radiologist is there and I'm there. And they're trying to say, are we going to the OR or are we going to IR? And I said, well, listen, I, let me see the CT scan first. So they do the CT scan and I see he's got panfusional fractures, including a Lefort 1. He's Lefort 1, 2, and 3, but he has a Lefort 1. So I'm thinking, okay. You can see that it's bleeding from the posterior maxilla. I'm thinking he had a Lefort 1 fracture. It's probably the descending palatine artery. That's mm-hmm. what I saw bleeding into the sinus. Mm-hmm. So if he didn't have a Lefort 1 fracture, I'm going to have to go there, surgically down fracture, yeah. find it, ligate it, clip. That's tough. That, Especially that's a lot of work. Especially yeah. in coding. Yeah. But he does have a Lefort 1 fracture. That's an option. But I asked the IR guy, I said, listen, can you embolize this with IR? Because I'll be honest with you, I've never had to deal with IR before in this situation. And, you know, in Canada, it's usually difficult. Some hospitals have it, yeah. some don't. Sometimes they're there, sometimes they're not there. He's there. He said, listen, if it's one vessel, then yeah, we, we can we can get it for sure. So he did a CTA as well. He thought he saw, you know, a, a specific area. I told him that I thought it was a descending palatine artery. So we made the decision, let's go to IR. So you kind of need to know as a resident, your protocols for uncontrollable bleeding when it comes to packing, hemostatic agents, surgical clipping or ligation. Backup like IR. Backup like IR. Yep. And that's something you always want to think about. So he went to IR. He cannulated the femoral, found the, the obvious blush, the posterior maxilla. It looked like the DPA or an associated branch. And he coiled it and it uh, fixed the problem. Watching them work, they're pretty slick. Really slick. Yeah. Yeah. Because I was there and I was like, if this guy fails, we're going right to the OR. Yeah. So we're telling the OR, keep an OR, block it open, get everything prepped. You know, we're doing all this simultaneously. And luckily he got it. So the guy was stable. And when I say stable, I mean, he's on a massive transfusion yeah. protocol, yeah. but he's no longer, no longer <laughs> bleeding to death. And now you got to think, okay, now it's a panfacial fracture. So the resident reminder here is really focused on, you know, management of panfacial fractures. And you go to the textbook, you read a lot of things that, you know, outside in, top, bottom, bottom up. Yeah. And, you know, you, you have to know those things and that's kind of the board answer maybe, but this is one of those examples of experience really playing. And I think I've, 
seen and done four or five pan facials now mm -hmm. in my like oral surgery residency and career because they're not that common. And I've really come to realize that although all those approaches matter, the number two or number one and two most important things by far is known to unknown and avoid widening. Yeah. And, and like that, especially known to unknown, it's even like when you're doing a biopsy, get on, on tissue that you know is sound yeah. and work your way back. Yeah. 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 Because, you know, for example, in a top-down approach, for this guy, his frontal bone is intact. I have no frontal sinus fractures. I have a massive NOE. I got orbital fractures everywhere. CMC fractures bilaterally. But listen, the frontal bone's intact. What does that mean? ZF, if ZF is well-reduced yep. and ZS looks good, boom, I'm yep. ready yep. seeing an area you that have I can one pillar. Yep. One pillar. For the NOE, his frontonasal uh, junction, totally fractured, but linear. Boom, I can reduce that. I can put a plate there. Mm -hmm. So you're going known to unknown. Now, the widening issue is you're always going to have results on these patients where they look too wide, both at the ZMC and at the mandible. Yeah. And it's because, you know, usually you have bilateral condylar fractures and a symphysis fracture and the mandible is widening and it's not reduced on the lingual. And that's what makes it look bad. I went into that consciously knowing that. However, got very lucky and the patient got lucky. No condylar fractures. Wow. Big symphyseal fracture, no condylar fractures. So as a resident, when you're answering this question, you have to remember, you have to establish width. Now you think, okay, what about my maxilla? Maybe I can base on that. Nope, because I have a Lafort one, two, and three fracture with a midline palatal split. Oh, so this guy got crushed. He got crushed, so the maxilla is wide, I can't rely on that. So you gotta think, how do I establish my facial width? I establish it in the mandible. Submental approach, so you can see the buccal and lingual cortices, reduce it anatomically into a perfect line, and you know, recomplate at the bottom, mm -hmm. six hole recomplate, two hour, two five thickness. Boom. I have my width because the condyles aren't an issue. If the condyles were an issue, I'll say that's I'd way harder. Way harder because you gotta do the submental for the for the anatomic reduction and then an anatomic reduction of both condyles. And it's gotta be good because yeah. you're basing everything off of that. Yeah. So once you establish your width, then you start going upwards. And you know, in my maxilla, I can put them into MMF now for the first time. And that's a it's win. Like a two piece, it's like a two piece of four yep. now. Yep. Two piece of four. So I did that. Did the ZMCs via multiple approaches. And then you finish in the middle with the NOE. And you finish with the NOE in the floors because you want to make sure you establish your width, your ZMC reconstruction, your if you had a frontal bone reconstruction, you want to do all that first. And then you kind of finish in the center of the face. So yeah, so you want to finish with the central part of the face, you know, your NOE, you want to do your orbital floors last, and you kind of want to go, that's why they're saying from the outside in. But you I think the two take-home points would be known to unknown or stable bone to unstable bone and establish your width. Yep. yep. You're always going to end up too wide. So push on those ZMCs, reduce them, push on those angles of the mandible. You're never going to think after a pan facial, oh, I left them too narrow. It's They always look too wide. When you think you've pushed enough, push more. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like the, opposite, with, like the opposite of bone grafting. When you think you've added enough bone, add more. Yeah, exactly. And uh, projection is always an issue too. In the NOE, you need way more projection than you think. Yeah. You're never going to over project. So yeah, so that, that was my experience with the, you know, first pan face as a staff. Another helpful tip is to get a 3D recon of the CT, the pre-op one. They just have so many fractures and everything is so mangled that having that 3D recon helps you visualize where the fractures are and what the overall pieces look like. 
keeping in mind that it makes things look easier than it yeah. does because it kind of blends pieces together. It makes it look all nice. It's a little bit of a cheat sheet. So it's not going to yeah. be perfect, but it does give you a better picture at least to be like, okay, where am I going to kind of start? I think it, it does help. Yeah. And another tip is don't forget about traditional arch bars. You know, here we use a lot of MMF screws, a lot of hybrids in the States, but your traditional Eric arch bars, we ended up using them for his maxilla because he had a palo split an alveolar fracture and not the greatest dentition in some areas. So yeah. having that arch bar stabilize the dentition, stabilize, you know, the two piece, it was really nice. They're cheap and efficient and they do a good job. Yeah. yeah. Don't forget about traditional arch bars. So that was a resident reminder on pan facial fractures. I don't know, Oscar, if you had anything you wanted to add from your experience or any kind of tips you wanted to give. No, I feel like you touched most of the things and it's nice to hear it as not as a resident and not because you're almost talking about it as a staff now, right? Like all my experiences as a resident were, yeah, even though I got to do a lot of it or almost run the whole case, a lot of it is still dictated by your staff. This is nice to hear from you being like, wow, this was my decision. This is how I did it. I think that's awesome. Yeah. Oh, that kind of reminds me. You deal with the initial acute, but your actual surgery doesn't usually need to be for a little while. Mm -hmm. In that time, I really took time to not only study all the approaches again, I'm going to admit, I took a piece of paper and I wrote down my order of steps, reduction, fixation, everything in yeah. order. Yeah, like, but because why wouldn't when we got you? To the OR, everyone was on the same page, and it was boom, boom. Because these are long cases. Yeah. Even even with all that, it still took. I think it was six and a half hours. So it wasn't bad considering how many fr uh, fractures he had in my first pan facial case. But one thing that really helped is we wrote in all the approaches we're doing in what order and what fixation and, and what fractures he has and what we're using, and you just write it yep. out in advance. Yeah, and I, and I think you taking the time to and, and just admitting that this isn't something you've done enough. So that you're going to over prep for it. That's, a, that's the best thing you could have done for that. Yeah. So I think that really helps. And yeah, we'd love to hear about other people's experiences, maybe with their first pan facial fractures or recent ones they've done, but hopefully they had a, a similar positive experience. So that wraps up our resident reminder. Let's get into recommendations. All right, Oscar, something funny, I think, happened with recommendations for this episode. I think we're on the same page, the same track, yeah. should we say. I was inspired because Formula One Drive to Survive, the season three came out in March. So we were going to talk about it in April, but, you know, that episode didn't happen. Yeah. So now we're in May and... You know, obviously, I already watched the entire season when it came out. I'm sure you've already watched the entire season. You know, you know, I watched it in a week. But the problem I had was we've talked about it so much and we recommended the show so much. People already know we're obsessed with the show. It's the number one show that we both recommended. And I, I still have a streak going where every single person I've recommended to that has watched has told me they loved it. Yep. I just recommended it lit literally last week. This came up in conversation and I told one of my uh, staff to listen, Jim Howell, to watch the show. He texted me that night saying he just started. The next day, he's like, okay, I'm hooked. Next day, he's on season one, episode nine. <laughs> yeah, so he pulled he pulled a me. Yeah, he was just crushing. He, he absolutely loved it. He's got three seasons to enjoy. But alas, as these things happen, you know, I'm really big into sports. I'm really big into competition. And even my cousin was telling me, oh, why don't you just watch Formula One then? I was like, nah. Like I told I like, you. I, like I told you. I, I don't want to watch <laughs> it. I just want to wait for the Netflix show, yeah. the summary. I don't know, maybe... This is what sold it for me. I didn't, cause I didn't realize this. I didn't realize, first of all, it's not like every week. Sometimes no. there's like a two week gap yeah. or a three week gap. So there's a lot of anticipation. It's, it's kind of infrequent. It gets built up. Yeah. I assumed it was like all the time, but no, there's it, it, an anticipation. I also, and this is probably stupid of me, but 
I didn't realize, you know, the race starts and it's just commercial free until the end of the race. Yep. And it's like, you know, two hours. It's kind of like a soccer game yep. almost. Even soccer has like half time, but you just watch the entire thing. I'm thinking in my mind something like, you know, the NFL or NBA where it takes, you know, three and a half hours, no. four hours, and there's all these ad breaks. No, it's just the race starts and you just watch the whole race. Because yeah. you can't put it on pause, right? The race is going to keep going. You can't tell a car exactly. to stop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you realize there's a lot of things in like the real world of Formula One of like strategy and tires and and pit stops and all that kind of stuff that they kind of touch on in the series, but they they don't really have enough time to explain. So, dude, I've gone off the deep end. I'm, I'm watching these races, usually delayed. I usually watch them like on demand yeah. later on in the week because uh, I don't have cable to watch them live. Um, I'm like researching like strategies. And stuff. I'm going crazy, man. You knew that I was a big fan of Formula One already. So when you had originally told me to watch the show, I'm like, well, this is perfect for me because I actually like Formula One. So I love the show, second it like 100%. When you told me that you're into Formula One now, I'm like, oh my gosh. So this guy went to oral surgery in Montreal for six years <laughs> and we never went to a race. Now he's hooked on it when he's not there anymore. I'm like, I could have used you for six years. They keep mentioning the Canadian Grand Prix yeah. and they're like, oh, it's canceled soon. I was like, I was there for six, six years, years. Yeah. and I thought, and I, I said this before, F1 weekend was that really annoying weekend where everything was busy, downtown was shut down, and it's just like a mess and now for that weekend. it's probably, you'd have so much fun. So much yeah. fun. <laughs> I would love to go. Yeah. And, <laughs> and it's funny, so like... You, you realize how many people actually are into Formula One once you really start talking about it. I, at first, when I would watch it, when I got into it, I didn't realize that that many people. Now, when I'm at my office, three of the partners, everyone's like, hey, are you watching the race this weekend? Are you watching the race this weekend? That's what we were talking about today. Well, Pierre Julius, doesn't he have like a Mercedes AMG like baseball cap or something? He does. Yeah. 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 So he's the biggest F1 fan. He is well, the, out, of, out of the bunch. He's the biggest F1 fan. The Nobel, like, pretty much Ontario district manager Spiros. He's huge. And so we're always texting him too on the weekend. It's a fun time. Yeah. It's, it's very entertaining. You get to know the teams, the drivers, you get to root for someone and just watch the drama unfold. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. There's one comment you did make to me that made me laugh. The only thing that I would do if I could go back to the Netflix series is get Verstappen into an orthognathic console. Now, the, yeah, I will, I will say, having watching it, there's a lot of these drivers that need to come forth and have the consults. No, 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 but he needed to come on yesterday. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely some jobs that would be required on a lot of these drivers, I find. Yeah. But who knows? Maybe uh, class two retronathia is more aerodynamic. Yeah, it just cuts through the air. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But yeah, so that's our, our joint recommendation. We actually came to the podcast with the same recommendation. Formula One Drive to Survive Season 3. And it, listen, if you're as obsessed with the shows as we are, look into watching the real thing. You'll enjoy it. It's a, It surprised me. I, I was pretty adamant that I wasn't going to, and I'm, I'm in the deep end. All right, everyone. That concludes our one-year anniversary episode. This was episode 12 of Teeth and Titanium. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you missed us. I did have some people you know, reach out to me saying, yo, where's Keith and Titanium yeah. this month? Yeah, like, no. Before the uh, issue of the COMS newsletter came out and informed everyone there wouldn't be an episode, I did have some people ask what's going on. That's, and that's nice to hear. And honestly, another thing that was nice to hear was hearing our previous guests talk about the show and talk about their experience on the show and things that we learned. So I thought that was great. It does make me realize that you and I, this show really hinges on our friendship. Yeah, so don't screw it up. Listen, I... <laughs> I'll do my best. Because you've already dropped the ball with what's it called? Pracademics? 
I was already trying to think of a way of, you know, slithering that back into yeah. this. Listen, you got to come around and got to compromise. Anyways, we'll see. We'll see if you grow into it. Yeah. We got a whole, we got, as, as our guest said, we got years to go. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. We got years to go. But thanks to you guys, the loyal listeners. We really appreciate your support. Happy to have done this for a year and we're definitely going to keep going. Let's be real. We're not going to stop anytime soon. So we hope you enjoyed the episode. If you want to reach out to us, teethandtitaniumomfs at gmail.com. And we will see you guys next time. Take care.